Coram saw a procession passing him. Beings of a hundred different races marched or rode or were carried in that procession, and he knew that he watched all the mortal races that had ever existed since law and chaos had begun their struggle for domination over the multitudinous plains of the earth. In the distance he saw the banners of law and chaos raised side by side, one bearing the eight radiating arrows, the other bearing the single straight arrow of law. And over all this hung a huge balance in perfect equilibrium. In each of the balance's cups were marshalled other beings, not mortal. Coram saw Ariok and the Lords of Chaos in one, and he saw the Lords of Law in the other. And Coram heard a voice which said, This is as it should be. Neither Law nor Chaos must dominate the destinies of the mortal planes. There must be equilibrium. Coram cried out, But there is no equilibrium. Chaos rules all. The voice replied, saying, The balance sometimes tips. It must be righted, and that is the power of mortals, to adjust the balance. How may I do that? You have begun the work already. Now you must continue until it is finished. You may perish before it is complete, but some other will follow you. Coram shouted, I do not want this. I cannot bear such a burden. You must... The procession marched on, not seeing Coram, not seeing the two banners flying, not seeing the cosmic balance that hung over them. Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Mocock flavoured podcast. On this show, we're returning to Coram with our final look at the Night of the Swords with Book 3. Now, before we kick off, we did experience a few sound issues with this show, so apologies in advance for some areas of roughness. Online recording remains something that I think I've got the hang of, only to find later that I still drop the odd snafu in here and there, often beer-related. It's all learning in the bank though, as it looks like remote recording is going to remain de rigueur for some months yet. This show signals another one of Moorcock's big five ticked off, and very soon we'll be getting to those other characters, such as the Von Beck dynasty and Captain Oswald Bastable, and of course, Kyle Glogauer. All in good time though. Now, it's been a while since I've risked injury by pulling the encyclopedias of fantasy and science fiction off the shelf, and I don't intend to pull anything today but a couple of days ago I got a smaller and slightly more manageable encyclopedia in the mail by Don DeMassa. I was a bit surprised as I was convinced I hadn't ordered it and somebody must have sent it to me, but there was no note inside, and it turns out I did order it. It was just last October and I'd completely forgotten. So it's obviously been on a wild adventure in the meantime, or a really, really boring one, anyway. Well, I looked at the Moorcock bit, and the Coram entry in particular raised an eyebrow. But first of all, on Moorcock, Don DeMassa says... 
Michael Moorcock has long been one of the leading writers in modern science fiction and fantasy, having won major awards in both fields. He's also one of the hardest to categorise because of his concept of the multiverse, a greater universe that includes our own and effectively infinite numbers of alternate realities, in some of which magic is real, blending science fiction and fantasy unpredictably. As part of that concept, he's developed the idea of the Eternal Champion, a hero who arises in different times and in different universes, always responding when the forces of evil or chaos threaten. Most of his heroes are manifestations of the same personality, sometimes with very similar names, whether they be Jarek Carnelian, Jerry Cornelius, or Elric of Melnibone. The first part of Mokot's career in fantasy was primarily sword and sorcery tales, at which he proved his mastery quite early, and his various champions usually prevail through a force of arms and the exercise of quick wits in a crisis. In recent years, his fantasy has taken on a more literary flavour, and most of the trappings of sword and sorcery have been abandoned. Now his champions use reason, personal loyalty, and careful planning to outwit the villains. Now, Loz and I discuss some elements of Coram's journey to the, the castle of the Knight of the Swords uh, in a little bit more detail, but whether he prevails due to his quick wits in any way is probably open to question. But anyway, let's take a look at what Mr. Damasa says about Coram. Coram, the last of his race, also resembles Elric, although he's more focused on his war against the forces of chaos. The first three novels, The Knight of Swords, The Queen of Swords and The King of Swords, all appeared in 1971. A second series consists of The Bull and the Spear, The Oak and the Ram, both 1973, and The Sword and the Stallion, from 1974. Now this is where it gets interesting. Coram is an elf, not a human, and since humanity has allied itself with chaos, he becomes its sworn enemy. The gods are fighting among themselves, and the younger deities, such as Odin and Loki, are rising to power as Coram completes a succession of heroic tasks. Hmm. Well, there's a couple of interesting conversation points there. Um, we won't even get into the idea of Odin and Loki being in the in the Coram novels. Now, I don't know if I've forgotten something, but <laughs> but I don't recall that. Uh, but the other thing is the idea of the Vadhag being elves. Now, we could probably do a show on the relationship between the Vadhag, Melnibonians, the Eldren and whether they are or aren't elves of some description. But I think we'll probably leave that one for another time. So, thanks Don. I shall enjoy looking a little bit further into this encyclopedia at a future point, which actually originated from Amory High School Library, 555 Minneapolis Ave, Amory, Wisconsin. So, interesting. I always enjoy the adventure of a book as it travels around the world. But anyway, on to the beer fueled gassing with returning laws. Stay tuned at the end of the show for Chapter 9 of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly, once again in its new improved special edition format, thanks to Score and Soundscape, care of the genius Nand Soundtracks. But meanwhile, sit tight, empty your gymnasia, stable your Scarlet Stallion, and join us in Darien Toms as we look at the Knight of the Swords, Book 3. <laughs> And we are back in Derry and Tom's virtual Zoom roof garden with Loz. Welcome back, Loz. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. It's uh, you know it's it's been a it's been a strange early part of 2021. It's kind of felt a little bit like the end of 2020, 
plus plus plus. But you know, some some major improvements over the last few days. I think. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I think the the most important thing um, to acknowledge is that while we've been pissing around trying to sort out our technical issues, and um, we've been desperate to open a beer. We have. Um, and we've saved it. So what have you got? I've got a Schindiger Sloosh, which yep. is a, 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 a raspberry, raspberry vanilla and chocolate stout. I am also on the stout. So I have a Hardywood Christmas morning. Obviously, I should have actually drunk it on Christmas morning, but as soon as I looked at the label, I thought, no, this has got to wait. <laughs> <laughs> this has got to wait for, for the next last show. And uh, it is... An imperial milk stout with spices and coffee, and it rings in at nine point two percent. And um, while I've been here for the last hour sorting shit out, it's been getting gradually warmer, and it wasn't yeah. refrigerator cold in the first place. So I'm kind of dreading it in a yeah. way. But you to know be honest, what? my sluice is, is is probably uh, egging towards the warm. I think, <laughs> which is a shame. Well, you know what? I'm going to pass them out. And uh, it's you know fortunately we can edit we can edit the par out in post. <laughs> yeah, jolly good. Although yeah. it's quite a satisfying noise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's all right. Yeah, no shit. Right. Yeah, I thought, okay. Right. I have uh, a glass in front of my mush, and I'm going in. Oh so my god, the aroma! <laughs> I just inhaled some. Yeah, mine very much does what it says on the tin, literally. It tastes like um, kind of a raspberry chocolate dessert. This this one tastes actually much better than I thought. Much better than I expected. It doesn't really taste of Christmas spices. Very, very heavy coffee flavour. Um, but there's something about it. I'm not saying it's oyster stout quality. <laughs> yeah. um, because that would be horrific. Dear listeners, the last time we drank oyster stout, I think four cans of it went down Stu's sink. But actually, no. This is this is okay. I'm I'm not quite sure about the whole imperial porter movement, to be honest. And I'm not quite sure because I really like porter and I really like you know stout. But yeah, they just keep mixing the streams and trying to make it like a dessert. It's like yeah, it is getting a bit a bit daft. And I've got another one lined up for for afterwards, which is a a slightly less aggressive one in terms of alcohol content. But anyway. Let's see how we get on with this. It's, it's actually it's actually not too bad, yeah, even though it's approaching room temperature. It's it's not as horrific as it could have been. But anyway, we're 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 here to to talk about the Night of the Swords book three. We are we? obviously a pleasant beer will assist us in that. Um, let's hope we get one at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> boom, not, boom. Not, not looking forward to my other two, to be honest. <laughs> Slightly nuggety, <laughs> but you know. Okay, so we should probably do something of a recap, shouldn't we? What happens in book one? Uh, well, lots of stuff happens in book one. You know, Coram, uh, Vadhag, I think. Mm-hmm. We, did we go for that pronunciation? I think again? we did. Of uh, Halen Ersai, or very different versions of his name. He, yep. uh, last of his race, he wasn't at the time, went to go and visit his relatives, or went a bit Pete Tong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mabdon struck humans have been uh, spreading across the land, destroying yep. the old races. He got maimed, eye put out, lost a hand, gained a girlfriend, so not all bad. Did a at, bit of fighting. At the hands of um, the weird era Oliver Reed. Glanditha Cray. Glanditha Cray. Yeah, which I think is probably he's from Croydon as well. 
to mm. be honest. Most mm. of them are, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Glandiff is a is a right wrong a pockmarked, greasy haired torturer, something like yep. better run. Yep. Uh then yeah, so he gained a girlfriend, had a bit of a fight, Moidel's Mount, I think it's called, isn't it? Which is yep. Michael's Mount. Helped out by the giant of La. Oh yeah. La. Yeah. yeah. La. Um, and the brown man. And the yeah the brown or is it the brown man of Lara and the giant of I can't remember but a giant and a yeah. brown man but the brown <laughs> man came a cropper for helping him it, mm. yeah he he went out didn't he not mm. in a good way and yeah. that was pretty much book one wasn't it yeah, and at the end of book one when everything's going slightly peaked on the is his bird the margravine Relina yeah. of Moidel's Mount a dead husband turns up with his shipmates. Yeah, and takes them off to the island of Shul and Jivan, which effectively is book two. Book two, a very short book. Yeah, so book two, Shul and Jivan has got Relina, and it turns out the Magra- the Magrave was undead because of Shul and Jivan's sorcery, and yeah. Shul with his weird island of meat plants, <laughs> various, <laughs> obviously, various other weird things, and um, basically wants Coram to. To do him a solid and go and steal the heart of Ariok. Sorry, the heart of the Knight, the Knight of, the of the Swords. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. Ooh, bit of a spoiler yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, and he also uh, wore some rather outlandish garb. He did. He wore breeks. He did. He was he was a woman for a bit, yeah. I think. He, he was yeah. a bear in a hat. He was a bear which, in a which hat. Which I enjoyed particularly. Yeah, he probably um, had breeks on as well. And then he, uh, he, he was wearing a very nice green jacket and a hat. He was, yeah. So a very stylish bear. Yeah, and he grants Coram two gifts to replace his missing hand and his missing eye. It's the hand of Quill. It is. And, and the, the eye, eye of Rin. Rin. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Not the eye of Rill and the hand of Quim. That's completely wrong. <laughs> that that's was the ill-chosen sequel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he, uh, and at the end, he sets off with Relina, still the captive of Shul and Yvan, and he sets off in a boat with some maps. A metal boat. A metal boat, yeah. And and actually, we'll we'll kick off with the first little bit from page 123 to set the scene. Coram's leave-taking from Relina had not been easy. It had been full of tension. There had been no love in her eyes as he had embraced her, only concern for him and fear for both of them. This had disturbed him, but there had been nothing he could do. Shuel had given him a quaintly shaped boat and he had sailed away. Now sea stretched in all directions, with a lodestone to guide him, Coram sailed north for the Thousand League Reef. Coram knew that he was mad, in Vadhag terms, but he supposed that he was sane enough in Mabden terms, and this was, after all, now a Mabden world. He must learn to accept its peculiar disorders as normal, if he were going to survive, and there were many reasons why he wished to survive. Relina, not least among them. He was the last of the Vadak, yet he could not believe it. The powers, available to sorcerers like Shul, might be controlled by others. The nature of time could be tampered with, the circling planes could be halted in their course, perhaps reversed. The events of the past year could be changed, perhaps eradicated completely. Coram proposed to live, and in living, to learn. And if he learned enough, perhaps he would gain sufficient power to fulfil his ambitions and restore a world to the Vadhag and the Vadhag to the world. So, first question there. What is a quaint shape for a boat? We, oh, I understand what boat shaped is, but what's a quaint shape for a boat? 
Uh, probably a, a coracle or something. A round one. <laughs> That's quite quaint. I think a quaint shape would be, I don't know. A canoe. <laughs> a, a, a gingerbread man shaped coracle yeah. or something. Yeah, that would be yeah. quite quaint. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it just had like flowers on the side of it or something like that. Yeah, that would yeah. be pretty. Yeah. I mean, it, it turns out that the boat is weird glowing metal with yeah. <laughs> with asymmetrical shapes sticking up out of it and a very nice mast and a sail covered in gr- weird glowing something or other. Yeah, people so, could uh, see him from miles away, wouldn't they? Yeah, I'm not sure I'd particularly describe that as quaint. You know, weird, certainly. So it's also interesting, we get, we, straight away we get Coram and his view of the Mabden world as, as mentally disordered. Yeah. Coram is, is of the Vadhagen and their aloofness. They view the world of men as a world that is just implicitly mentally disordered. And We just don't get it though, does he? He's just like, I just uh, I... What are you on about? <laughs> no, to be fair, having having witnessed the last year's worth of Mabden current affairs <laughs> in yeah, the real yeah. world, he's probably got a point. Yeah, exactly. It comes back to that uh, that view of humanity, isn't it, through a different lens? And he's there, yeah. like going, "Why would you do that? What are you on yeah. about?" But to be fair, I mean, the counter argument is he has been poncing around doing like a symphony for about a hundred years. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I was going to say, pacey, are they? You know. Yeah, I was going to say that he's endlessly composing over decades an epic prog theremin symphony. Yeah, <laughs> really it's... a reasonable alternative. I mean, to be fair, if I if I had that capability, I would be doing that as well. You know, well, probably yeah. would just be there. Yeah, oh, it's brilliant. It's lasting uh, currently two weeks yeah. just on the drum solo section. Yeah, but yeah, this he's... theremin solo rocks, man. <laughs> yeah. <Woo-hoo. laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, and that's this is not a refreshing beer, by the way. It is basically like drinking a trifle. Yeah. Which, you know. Whereas mine is like drinking uh, an old tin of black treacle mixed with swarfiga <laughs> that's been in the yard uncovered for about five years. Uh, so with a with a touch of bovril. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, Heyman's or Haywoods or wherever you are, if you want, if you want to put that on your bottle. As, uh, as you a recommendation, <laughs> you can have it. You can have it That's for now. That's for free. That's yeah. for free. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so there's Coram in his boat, in his quaint boat, basically going, "What the hell's going on?" Yeah. Th- thousand League Reef. Yeah. Uh, well, he sails for three days. He does. Let's 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 get down to some proper Moorcock hero action here. He sails for three days, mulling over his love for Alina. Yeah. Exactly. He really likes it, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Or maybe he's just change, doing pros and cons, going, yeah. yeah. That, that seems to happen a lot with, with um, Eternal Champion aspects on boats, because Erikos did a whole hell of a lot of that, mulling over his love for the Eldrin, Amazad, and the uh, human princess. That's pretty much all he did the entire was, time he was on ship. What was she called? She she was basically like a Fox News anchor, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> blonde, and go- blonde and gorgeous, but completely right-wing and evil. Yeah. But you're right, he eventually sights the Thousand League Reef, but despite Shul giving him a map, he can't find an ingress in it, so he sails around it for far more days, <laughs> which means that basically he's been in a boat for seven days. You know, it might be glowing, it might be quaint shit, but that's quite a lot, isn't it? it it's not a big boat either, is it? You wouldn't have no, thought. no. So thanks, Shul, for that crap map, yeah. even though it does show that he's nearly, nearing um, Kulakra, land of the Raga... Daketa. Daketa. Yeah, Raga yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, that's that's the thing about the, the Mocock naming convention, isn't it? If yeah. in doubt, put an H in there. 
No, yeah, I think that put an H in and three hyphens. Yeah, if you can. <laughs> but H is a, you know, put the H's in there. And then we all but, go, how do you pronounce that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, however you wish. Yeah, but anyway, this, this chapter's called The Word in God. So, no surprises when he comes across the actual Word in God. Yeah, a yeah. massive giant of a fella wading about with a giant fishing net. Yeah, he's um, a big fella, isn't he? Yeah, but we don't get any vad hag to god chinwags as the waves yeah. emanating from the word in God's massive bulk force the boat away from the reef and off to who knows where. So he spends four d- three days finding the reef, four days sailing around the reef, then this word in God fella <laughs> turns up and a tidal wave pushes him in the opposite direction, which is, you know... It's, it's, it's unlucky, isn't it? To be it's fair. not going terribly well one weekend. But I love the imagery of that. I love the imagery of the word in God. And it's, it's just like this weird force of nature that just turns Looking up. for something. Yeah, and screws all his plans. Just wandering around with his fishing net, having, <laughs> having a cast about to see what he can find. Yeah, completely no oblivious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Completely oblivious to people on a mission. And do you think that was kind of when, when he was writing that chapter, it was kind of like, right, okay... Yeah, he's in a boat. There's the thousand like league reef. It sounds cool. Oh God, I don't know what to do next. Yeah, I'll have him sailing round it. Uh, I think it's it's the first example of in book three. We're in quest mode, aren't we? Yeah, which yeah. T- which turns out to be a major feature of all the Corum books from here on in. Is at some point we yeah. engage quest mode, and and we haven't got to um, the quest modes involving Goffin and the Dwarf and all that stuff. Several Thank the Lord. books down the line. Yeah, one day. massive horses. Yeah, one day we'll get to that. It's like he's got, he's really got no urgency, has he? No, 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 no. At he's all. just, he just, he, he spends most of the books just wandering around, going, Oof. yeah. And I think, and then, and then more... summer happens to kick him off to the next point. Yeah, and I think it's more so with, with this particular book as well, because there's a lot of lack of agency. And then summer happens, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, um, and we'll we'll pick up on yeah. that as we go along. But one of the things that this really reminded me of, um, the word in God, was time bandits. <laughs> and I wonder if Gilliam and Palin did any mocock in the 70s because it's really quite similar imagery and the massive bald-headed dude who ends up that the ship is his hat. You remember um, that in Time Bandits? Where they, they escape the Titanic and then they get picked up by... They get pulled on a ship by, a, by a, an ogre and his missus. I can't and, remember. I've not seen. Yeah, it for ages. they get they get pulled on in 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 a, a fishing net, and anyway, you know, escapades ensue. Um, but then, as they get close to shore, the boat starts to lift out the water, and it turns out the boat oh, yeah, is just the hat that. of a giant yeah, wading dude who walks up onto the shore, takes the hat off, puts it on the beach, then sits down on some poor little creature's house and goes <laughs> to sleep. And it's it's exactly the same kind of thing. The characters have no agency whatsoever. They're just along for the ride, and then this this massive, effectively wading godlike creature just ends up like sort of intervening, like a force of nature, and directing them off in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just yeah, we find out later. Maybe it's not all random, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Many spoilers ahead. Well, yeah, a couple of books ahead, isn't it? Really? Well, that's true. Yeah, I went. Yeah, funnily enough, just going back to what you just said. That's. Um, that's another common thing, isn't it? Just think of condition of Muzak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we'll get to that one day as well. And that is a good book. Chapter two begins with Coram shipwrecked now. So this tidal wave has forced him away from the Thousand League Reef and is shipwrecked below some foreboding cliffs. And his boat's been swept away. 
giving him yet more time to reflect, as if seven days in a glowing boat wasn't enough, but he gets a little bit more time to reflect. He walked a few paces up the beach and sat down beneath the tall black cliff. He was stranded on a strange shore, his boat was gone and his girl now lay on the other side of an ocean. At that moment Coram did not care, thoughts of love, of hatred, of vengeance disappeared. He felt he had left them behind, in the dream world that was Sfi and Fan Labrugal. All he had left was that world, was the six-fingered hand and the jewelled eye. Reminded of the eye, and what it had witnessed, he shivered. He reached up and touched the patch that covered it, and then he knew that by accepting Shul's gifts he had accepted the logic of Shul's world. He could not escape from it now. So he's, he's just on this uh, this crazy ride, and again we've mentioned uh, like his, his lack of urgency, and we'll see that as we go along. And that's where not just Coram accepts this, but we as a reader have to accept this as well, that basically we're on a psychedelic journey, and yeah, just yeah. sit tight, don't expect <laughs> don't yeah. expect anything other than weirdness. And it is, isn't it? That's I mean, when I first read it as a kid, as I said, when we first started this stuff, it was like, whoa, this is mental. Just mm. everything about it was alien and weird, and because every every other fantasy book I read before that was very much set in the pseudo medieval European world that still is used today, isn't it? And yeah, and then as soon as you read this, you go right. There's absolutely no, even though the beginning, you know, you've got kind of the Celtic names and stuff like that. Yeah, it's still got absolutely it's bonkers, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's, you it's, can, it's more Alice in Wonderland now, isn't yeah, it, yeah. from here on in? But yeah, it's it just... it more to Alice in Wonderland than any other fantasy that came before it. Yeah, it's just um, it is just like a psychedelic trip, isn't it? It's just yeah. right. Okay, what's what's happening to Coram now? It, and that's why it would make under a certain director's eye would be amazing. Just yeah, because it'd just be insane. Luke yeah, Besson it... would probably do it brilliant because he's yeah. good at spectacular, if yeah, heavily just, flawed just... films. Yeah, just. Don't cast Dane DeHaan, for Christ's sake. Don't in cast Dane DeHaan in anything, and everything will be all right. Yeah. <laughs> is he the one in... Um... Valerian. Yeah, yeah, Valerian. Yeah, yeah and he was, he was also in a film by Gore Verbinski called The the Something of Wellness. It's, it's actually quite an interesting film about a guy, I think in the 50s, who goes to some like health retreat and there's weird things going on there. But he's just a, t- he's just a terrible leading man. He's a charisma vacuum. Anyway, is, I think we've mentioned that before. So sorry, sorry Dan. Yeah. yeah, sorry, Dan. If you're listening to this, which I'm sure you will be, no we'll offense. buy you a pint sometime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you can come and drink this Christmas beer and take it off my hands. Yeah, exactly. All the best. Anyway, Cora wanders about for a bit more. He's doing a lot of wandering around, and then finds his way up the cliffs and spots a beautiful minareted city, he all does. aglow with bright colours. And shortly afterwards, he meets the denizens, who are the Raga Daketa. And the city is Kulakra. Yeah, exactly. And I made a couple of notes on the Ragadaketa. So yeah, you know, I I can't read the book from it because I've not got my uh, reading spectacles. Matrons left yeah. them downstairs. But when I was um, rereading it, because so the you know they're super thin, aren't they? They've got yep. round head, round eyes, and a permanent look of surprise. Yeah, it's basically Mister Spoon, isn't it? It yeah, is. When I, when I was reading, it, it was like these guys are are basically spoon people. Yeah, the, the description of them I, I actually quite like because it is, yeah. again, we're not talk- it's not orcs, is it? No, no. So, Korob had travelled less than a mile before the bizarre cavalry came racing towards him. Warriors mounted on long-necked speckled beasts with curling horns and wattles like those of a lizard. The spindly legs moved swiftly, however, 
and soon Coram could see that the warriors were also very tall and extremely thin, but with small rounded heads and round eyes. They were not Mabdon, but they were like no race he had ever heard of. He stopped and waited. There was nothing else he could do until he discovered if they were his enemies or not. Swiftly they surrounded him, peering down at him through their huge staring eyes. Their noses and their mouths were also round and their expressions were ones of permanent surprise. Now, I think there's, there's a couple of things here. It's, it's like, he's, he's, he's inventing these things and throwing them away just, yeah. you know, for fun. And this is part of his inventiveness. But I have got a bone to pick. So we go through all this rigmarole of him sailing for three days to found, find the Thousand Island Reef, then sailing round it for four days to a point where, according to his map from Shul, is close to... Kulakra and the Raga Daketa, but then the wading god turns up, throws him way off course in the opposite direction, and he gets marooned on the coast, and it turns out to be Raga Daketa and the city of Kulakra anyway. It's like it's just so on a railroad. I mean, I can forgive him, but it's so on a railroad. It's like what what was the point of the entire passage with the wading god other than it's a cool image. Yeah, yeah, well, it was a cool image, wasn't it? But that's a lot yeah. of the stuff in this particular story, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really cool image, but ultimately, it's yeah, it throw yeah. away, isn't it? Yeah, you're going in one direction, and you're going to get there, and you're going to pass a couple of places on the way, but it's going to be loads of cool imagery. And I just think it's, it's stuff like this that always makes you remember that he probably wrote this in three days. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. And the um, yeah, and the ragged Aketa people. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll invent these. I mean, some people would spin that out for a book, for a, half a book, wouldn't they? Yeah, it, here's the world building of the Ragged Aketa, whereas, you know, he sums it up in about a chapter, and we're like, yeah, yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah, well, of course, you know, these these dudes, they're, they're taken to meet the king, Temgol Lep, yeah, in a big grand, grand courtyard, <laughs> who uh, they have a quick chin wag, and he offers Coram uh, some wine, and then the hand of Quill moiders him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The t- it was the old uh, poison wine trick, isn't it? The Mister yeah. T cup of milk job, isn't it? Yeah, uh, but even at that point, Karim was Karim don't think poison wine is just like no hand. What are you on about? Yeah, but but basically, he just ends up doing a massive Elric. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in that the, the the magic one of the magic MacGuffins kills this king after he's offered him wine. Maybe it was poison. Maybe the hand just didn't like the fact it was offered in a mug. Or maybe yeah, the hand exactly. wanted it in a mug and was offended that it wasn't. Or maybe like he's got six fingers and he's a special mug. Maybe so. Glass. Maybe the loop handle on the wine mug was just insultingly small and he couldn't get his finger through it. Yeah, Either exactly. way, the hand of Quill is super offended by King Temgol Lep and murders him. And then, of course, Coram gets attacked by the rest of the Ragged Aketa and basically butchers a lot of them. Not a yeah. wasted trip, though, because for the first time he, he finds out that Ariok is indeed the Knight of the Swords. Yeah, and we all go, ooh, ooh, uh, Ariok. Yeah, oh unless God. you've uh, never read any of the books, you read this one and go, Ariok, yeah, he's some guy. Ariok, yeah, he's just, just some just, bloke. He's just a guy, you know. Yeah, and then you get that treat later on when you read yeah. other things. Yeah. And then he falls through the floor of the courtyard into a pit to face a beast. That was the bit I got a bit confused about. So one one minute he you know killed Temgol Lep, then mm-hmm. bit of a sword fight. How did he fall down a hole? I don't know. It's it's all got a bit Jabba's palace, hasn't it? It has a bit. Yeah, it it was a bit. He surely must have seen the hole, or was it yeah. like a secret hole? I don't know. Yeah, a big kind of flagstone. And if it was a door or something. 
And that's the thing with trapdoors in courtyards and stuff like that. Who's the architect who suddenly goes, "Here's an idea. Yeah. I've I've built the uh, courtyard. It's beautiful. There's a fountain, and here's a a pit. You know. Yeah. So so whatever you do, don't press that lever. I'll yeah. just put it in just in case you needed it. And it's like, well, why bother? Well, it turns out they did need it because he was butchering them all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one of these ragadaketa thought, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, one, that lever, I'm going to pull it. I think one thing we need to go back to about the ragadaketa as well, which we've kind of just overlooked slightly, is how utterly depressing they are as well. Because <laughs> the, 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 the ultimate fatalists, aren't they? Just going, yeah. oh, yeah, well, we were happy once, then Ariop came, and then... Yeah. He said we're all rubbish, so we're yeah. all gonna die, and that was it. Yeah. So we, we are we are doomed, but at least <laughs> yeah. if we do what he says, we might live a couple more weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they probably are talking in weeks, aren't they? So yeah. what about the Mabdon? Are, are you annoyed that they're killing all the old races? No, not really. It's Ariok's will, you know. What do yeah. you do? And it comes yeah. back to that utter bystander view of what's happening in the world, isn't it? Where you just sit there, oh, nothing we can do about it, really, you know? Yeah. Just apathy and despair. Yeah. yeah, we'll just sit here with our rather big hats. Yeah. Our spindly yeah. legs. I mean, the king does sound like he's got an impressive hat and he wears he a does. gold kilt, which I think is a really strong look. It is. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's at least some some element of sartorial flair left yeah. in the uh, the ragged aketa. And they've got the other, the other confusing thing is that um, he falls through the trapdoor onto the back of a beast, it says. Yeah. And then very quickly, in chapter three, you turn out the beast is just this filthy, hairy dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just some guy just... called Hanifax of Pengard. Yeah, I quite liked Hanifax of Pengard. He was a... I quite like Hanifax of Pengard, yeah. but he's basically another incarnation of Basil Exposition. Oh, he really he? is, isn't it? He's, he's yeah. Basil Exposition's crossed with, um, in City of the Autumn Stars, who was the balloon dude. Oh, yeah. Saint I can't remember. It's too long Saint since Odrin, I read it. Odrin, wasn't it? St. Odrin, yeah. 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 So it's him. He's very much like Moonglum. He's very yeah. much like a couple. He's like almost a pro. Not even a prototype, is he? Because he probably came after. But yeah. he, he is one of the. We'll find out very shortly. A ill-fated companions <laughs> champions. Yeah, very true. Yeah, very true. So anyway, Coram's having this uh, this chin wag with him, and it's Hanifax who suggests that the wine was probably poisoned. Yeah. And, you know, Cara took a while for the penny to drop, but he suddenly realises that the hand was maybe doing him a solid there. So Cara asks what the score is with Hanifax. And Hanifax says, It's a long tale, Prince Coram. Ariok, as he is called here, does not smile on the folk of Luibanesh. He expects all the Babden to do his work for him, chiefly in the reduction of the older races such as your own. As you doubtless know, our folk have had no interest in destroying these races, for they have never harmed us. But earlier is a kind of vassal deity to the Knight of the Swords. It was earlier that I served as a priest. Well, it seems that Ariok grows impatient for reasons of his own, and commands earlier to command the people of Leomanesh to embark on a crusade, to travel far to the west where a sea folk dwell. These folk are only about fifty in all and live in castles built into coral. They are called the Shalafen. Erla gave me Ariok's command. I decided to believe that this was a false command, coming from another entity unfriendly to Erle. My luck, which was never of the best, changed greatly then. There was a murder. I was blamed. I fled my lands and stole a ship. After several somewhat dull adventures, I found myself among this twittering people who so patiently await Ariok's destruction. I attempted to band them together against Ariok. They offered me wine, which I refused. They seized me and placed me here, where I have been for more than a few months. 
So we found out a little bit about Hanifax. And yeah. if this was any other book, Coram would help Hanifax get back and take his revenge on all these people and would find more out about the the, the Temple of Erle and all yeah. this business and who all these people were and, and who... Uh, the Shalafen uh, were. The Shalafen were. Never mentioned again. No. <laughs> Never mentioned again. It's just it's just a little bit of throwaway characterization, and he could give some exposition about stuff that's going on that isn't really important. It just highlights the fact that he was a priest of a sub-deity that was somehow related to Ariok. Yeah. The Knight of the Swords, and now he's in this position where he's he's anti Ariok. Yeah, and then he yeah, so as you said, it was the uh, certain people just go and kill some weird crab type people for no apparent reason. It kind of yep. shows the pettiness of Ariok and also the, the the madness that is kind of spreading across the land, doesn't it? But I think the yeah. the other side of it is to show that you know that that there are Mabden out there that are not all that bad. Yeah. But but ultimately yeah. completely irrelevant, and I like the fact that he does several dull adventures. <laughs> you can just imagine Mark up right there going, "Oh, yeah. uh, what did he do?" Oh, that, oh. That there was it was set up as a murderer. Yeah, yeah, and it's he had this. to escape. Yeah. yeah. Oh, then what happened? Oh, there were dull dull adventures. Yeah. So we don't need to go yeah. into it, Coram. Don't worry. Yeah, about let's it. just rattle it off in in, in half a page. Yeah, and, and never go there again because it's not important. Yep. So at this point, Coram's like, right, okay, so it's 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 time to get the fuck out of Dodge. He once again goes full on Elric now by um, taking his eye patch out, looking into the Netherworld, the weird cave of the dead, and summons four figures from the world beyond the plains that the Eye of Rill allows him to see. And uh, he, he starts to get a little taste of the power of the Eye. He, he, he sees these four figures, and it says, uh, from them radiated a force that froze the skin. They mounted some steps and another door was burst by the size of the cloaked creatures. There was daylight. They found themselves in the main courtyard of the palace. From all sides came warriors. This time, they did not seem so reluctant to kill Coram and Hanifax, but they paused when they saw the four cloaked beings. There are your prizes, Coram said. Take as many as you will, then return to whence you came. The scythes whirled in the sunshine. The ragged Aketa fell back screaming. The screaming grew louder. The four began to titter, then they began to roar. Then they began to echo the screams of their victims as their scythes swung and heads sprang from necks. Sickened, Coram and Hanifax ran through the corridors of the palace. Hanifax led the way and eventually stopped outside a door. Everywhere now, the screams sounded, and the loudest screams of all were those of the four. <laughs> Bit grim, wasn't it? Yeah, it's quite grim. And I think, and that's the uh, the thing about Coram, isn't it? All of a sudden he's going, yeah, well, I could wipe out as many people as possible. They did try and poison me after all. True, uh, but originally these chef and now say, well, you know, we we each want a, we we each want a soul or or to kill someone. Yeah. Coram's just like, fill your boots, yeah. take them all, knock yourself <laughs> out, it'd be all right. Yeah, have the lot of them. Yeah, I didn't like him anyway. Yeah, bloody hell, Coram. Uh, and then they escape courtesy of Hanifax's kite. Yep, magic kite. Magic kite, which is bit, pretty does, groovy. It does a bit of magic, bit of kite, and there they are. So can't imagine it. Yeah, you know, it's not particularly well described. I think, I think we. No. I, I did. I did have a little bit of trouble visualizing that one. Yeah, I did it. But, so they get in the kite, <laughs> which for me was like, 
I've, you know, I'm not an expert on kites, but I've never been in a kite, really. Yeah, but we don't need to worry about it because it lasts about 37 seconds. It does, yeah. And then, <laughs> so then we, again, we carry on comes, the psychedelic yeah. journey of Coram. Yeah, and it his comes best mate. and it goes very, very quickly. To the Flamelands. So they head to the Flamelands, chapter four in the Flamelands. And as they fly, first over the Thousand League Reef, which, you know, all, all this all this uh, attention paid on getting to the Thousand League Reef, they fly over it. Yeah. Um, then over the de- <laughs> no. Then over the de- the desert of Drunhazat. Which ring? I'm sure Drunhazat was. It sounds like an Elric desert, doesn't it? There is a, a a desert in one of the Elric stories that sounds very very similar. Isn't it? For, isn't the city in Fortress of the Pearl? It's either the name of the city. That's Quartzhazat, isn't it? Quartzhazat. <laughs> that one. Yeah. What yeah. Yeah. But yeah, pro- yeah. probably not as many. Ha ha. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Hafer. Yeah, Dr. Hafer. Mr. Helmer. Yeah, on the edge of the Cyan Desert. So, but yeah, so yeah. some of these names do end up being quite similar. Yeah. True. But the good thing is, Hanaf Exposition <laughs> <laughs> tells Cora <laughs> something of the cosmology of parts thereabout. Um, <laughs> I've written down the wrong page. Hanaf <laughs> Exposition. Yeah, Hanafax position, yeah. Coram says, is that Erda, Sir Hanafax? I had it as Erd. Erd, Erd, Erd. <laughs> I think it must be the place Erd by its position and appearance. Unstable matter, Prince Coram, created by the Chaos Lords. The Chaos Lords? I've not heard that term used before. Mm. So yeah, Cor- Cor- Coram comes from a world free of law and chaos. He's never even heard of it. And Hanafax says, have you not? Well, it is their will that rules you. Ariok is one of them. Long since there was a war between the forces of order and the forces of chaos. The forces of chaos won and came to dominate the 15 planes, and, as I understand it, much that lies beyond them. Some say that order was defeated completely, and all our gods vanished. They say the cosmic balance tips too far in one direction, and that is why there are so many arbitrary events taking place in the world. They say that once the world was round instead of dish-shaped. Hard to accept, I agree. Oh, God. <laughs> dish-earthers. Not, not a bunch of dish-earthers. Yeah, God, those guys. Yeah. Some Vadak legends say it was once round. Aye. Well, the Vadak began their rise just before order was banished. That's why the sword rulers hate the old races so much. They're not their creation at all. But the great gods are allowed to interfere too directly in mortal affairs, so they have worked through the Mabden. Chiefly. So, these sword rulers, they don't like anything that, that came before, they don't like the old races, and they want them gone. Quite common, that, isn't it? In yeah, certain yeah. Fantasy. Bit, bit Sounds a, quite familiar. Bit of a theme, isn't it? But I think the, the other side, it, it kind of implies that the Mabdun were made by the Chaos Gods, Yeah. and the Vadag were made by the Law Gods, if that's what yeah. it's kind of suggesting, isn't it? But that yeah. kind of goes against a lot of the cosmology of other books isn't it yeah that's right um but there's there's uh, a fairly interesting passage where karam said well i'm going to have them you know that the, they should all be destroyed so they talk about sorcery oh this sorcery it wearies my mind i cannot grasp its logic and hanifax says that's because it has none it's arbitrary the lords of chaos are the enemies of logic the juggles of truth the molders of beauty i should be surprised if they had not created these flame lands out of some aesthetic impulse Beauty, an ever-changing beauty, is all they live for, Coram says. An evil beauty. Hanifax, I believe that such notions of good and evil do not exist for the Chaos Lords. 
I should like to make it exist for them. Corrib mopped his sweating head with his coat sleeve and destroy all their beauty. They're kind of bringing into the the conversation this idea that you know law and chaos isn't as simple as good and evil and destruction and yeah. and um, build because chaos can also be a thing of beauty. And Hanifax's perspective kind of sees both sides, and that's why it's, I, I quite like the character of Hanifax. You know, bless him. <laughs> yeah, shame, shame, really. Yeah, yeah, him, shame, Hanifax. But anyway, the kite catches fire anyway in the land. Of course it does. So, yeah. so, that, so the, the Flamelands thing. If you if you're drawing a map, so, you know we've gone back to I'll go back to RPG stuff. But you yeah. draw an RPG map, you go right. Okay, so we've got uh, we've got the Thousand League Reef. We've got uh, the city of Kulakla. Uh, that will fly a bit more. What do I do now? Oh, I'll just have a massive wall of flames, like yep. sky high across the yep. entire horizon. Bob's and then you'll cr- okay, it's crashed. Random encounter table. Well, yeah, no, yeah. no random encounter table because the yeah. GM in this case has just got he's got his hex that says <laughs> the flame lands, and underneath it there's twenty warriors in hellish, in yeah, hellish, hellish garb. Armor. Yeah, hellish armor, hellish garb, riding weird beasts with hellish plate mail armor. Yeah, so, so the, the, the oh god, there's a lot of lizard riding, isn't there? In um, there is. in this part of land, the lands, I think. yeah. The other guys yeah. had kind of weird ostrichy lizards, didn't they? The uh, the dead, the ragged aketa. These these are more the your squat lizard, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, a, a, a little bit more hardcore, yeah. I think. And you know, he has a quick exchange with these dudes, and they say, you know what? There's no escape from the flame lands except through the lion's mouth. Mm. Not really sure what that's all about. And the stats close in. So rather than saying, hold, friends, tell me more about the lion's mouth, takes off the eye patch. <laughs> well, that's the takes thing. off the eye patch. That was a weird <laughs> thing, though, wasn't it? You kind of all of a sudden he's going, he's got a thirst for it, hasn't he? He must have. Yeah. He's, there he's got going, a proper burner for yeah, this eye patch he's, now. He's going, right, okay, so these guys, you know, could we have a chat about it? Could yeah. we learn a bit more? Have a bit of conversation? No. Murder yep. hobo, off the eye patch comes, bobs your undies. Yeah. Basically, he goes down Asda, and the guy at the door says, You can't come in without a mask. He's like, Right, eye patch. <laughs> um, so he, he uses the eye of the vanished god again to aid him, but on this occasion, he looks into the netherworld, and rather than seeing the, the four scythe dudes, he sees the dead Ragadaketa and, and King Temgol Lep. And once again, they're like, Oh, yeah, we might be dead, but we'll come to your raid. For a price, yeah, and then a terrible realization dawns upon him of what the, what, what the pattern of these eye patches is. Yeah. But nevertheless, he goes, "All right, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah what, all right, cool." What can possibly yeah. go wrong with these random people on lizards? Yeah, he's like, "Take your fill." Pale faced, Coram watched. He knew that he was consigning the Flamelands warriors to the same netherworld from which he had summoned the Ragged Aketa, and his actions had sent the Ragged Aketa to that netherworld in the first place. On the gleaming rock, around which ran rivers of red lava, the ghastly battle continued. The clawed cubs ripped the cloaks from the riders, revealing a people whose faces were familiar. Stop! Cried Coram. (laughs) Stop! That's enough! Kill no more! Temgol Lep turned his glazed eyes on Coram. The dead king had a barbed spear sticking completely through his body, but he seemed unaware of it. His dead lips moved. These are our prizes, master. We cannot stop. And Coram's all like, but they are Vadag. They are like me. They are my own people. Which I, I think is a bit xenophobic, to be honest. There he is. Yeah. Yeah, he won't bother if it's somebody else, does he? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Hanifax put an arm on Coram's shoulder. 
they're all dead now, Prince Coram. <laughs> Cheers for that, Anaflex. Yeah. I didn't notice. <laughs> yeah. Sobbing, Coram ran towards the corpses, inspecting the faces. They have the same long skulls, the same huge almond eyes, the same tapering ears. But were bleeding a lot. <laughs> yeah. How came Vatag here? Hanafax murmured. Now, Temgol Lep was dragging one of the corpses away, aided by two of his minions. The scaled beasts scattered, some of them splashing through the lava uncaringly. Through the eye of Rin, Coram saw the ragged Aketa pull the corpses into their cave. With a shudder, he replaced the eye patch, save for a few weapons and tatters of armour and clothing, save for the disappearing mounts. Nothing remained of the Vatag, of the Flamelands. I have destroyed my own folk, Coram screamed. <laughs> <laughs> I have consigned them to a frightful doom he in really that has. world. Yeah. Oh, mate, you know. You, you were horrified when you realised what you'd done to the ragged Aketa. Didn't hold you back, did it? No. Didn't, didn't stop you. No. So then he has a good weep. He does. Oh dear. Yeah. So what have I done? He's had a sob, and now he's having a bloody good weep. Yeah, yeah, Because, you know, he hadn't had one for a while, so why not? Yeah, exactly. And he wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, it's his own fault, you know, to be fair. I've got yeah. little uh, sympathy for the man. So it's, uh, this score of warriors came along with a complete lack of patience. Wanting to move the plot forward, yeah. obviously. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, he, he had them all butchered by undead Ragged Aketa, has a good weep, and then he's overheard by an ancient blind Vadag woman who turns about the Queen Urese. Yes. Yeah. Is. And she's, so they get into a conversation and he says, Oh, are you on your own? She says, Oh, my people number but 20. <laughs> <laughs> well. Like, oh, no. Yeah. Well, well Queen, when you say yeah. 20. <laughs> Oh, sit down, love. I've got some bad news. You're not going to believe this, and <laughs> it was what him. A, what a coincidence! Hanafax <laughs> did it. His yeah. hair proves it. <laughs> but, um, what a crazy coincidence! And he says to her, doesn't he? His, his Coram's lips were dry. I have slain your people, lady. That is why I weep. Her face did not alter. They were doomed to die. It's better that they are dead. I thank you, stranger, for releasing them. So that's probably yeah. made him feel a bit better, hasn't it? This is our second bunch of folks who were basically, you know, doomed and um, yeah. and pretty much resigned to it. She decides to call them the Ved Drag as well, doesn't she? Yeah. Of the and she also mentions that they're warred with the Nedrag. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so very what? similar. But, you know, so they're kind of, I don't know, the Geordies of the Vatag, I don't know, possibly. Yeah. From home. Maybe so. The yeah. Ved Drag. So she, she explains a few more things anyway, that this was once a verdant place ruled by Lord Arkin. Yeah. So that's yeah. the first time uh, Lord of Laws mentioned, Big Arkin. Yeah. Um, but Ariok ousted him and the lands became a flame. Really, really struggling. A lot of her people just rode into the flames to their doom because they couldn't cope with the, uh, the the destruction of their world. And over time, the rest of her people dwindled as they went through the lion's mouth to try and defeat Ariok. Yeah. But none returned. And she poked mm. her own eyes out so she didn't have to look at what happened to the land. Which is quite extreme, but you know, strength of character. So she agrees to take him to the lion's mouth. Chapter yeah. five. The through lion's, the lion's mouth. mouth. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Alas, poor Hanifax. We knew you yeah. fairly little. We <laughs> liked you, but it's time for you to check out. <laughs> we thought we thought you were an alright bloke. Yeah, we thought we were pretty decent. But unfortunately, as they get close to the lion's mouth, Hanifax starts to behave rather um, strangely as some kind of unearthly grip overcomes him. 
Yeah, and he's like, ah, oh, the pain, I will not, I will not, which makes you yep. a bit suspicious. And yeah, then, it uh, does. And then, the hand of Quill ain't taking the chances. No, no, so um, that was it. Arioka will not. Hanifax began to pant. Then Coram's borrowed hand leapt up from the saddle where it held the reins. Coram tried to control it, but it shot straight towards Hanifax's face, its fingers extended. Fingers drove into the Mabden's eyes. They pierced the head, plunging deep into the brain. Hanifax screamed, No, Coram, please do not. I can fight it. Ah. And the hand hand of Quill withdrew itself, the fingers dripping with Hanifax's blood and brains, while the lifeless body of the Mabden fell from the saddle. Unlucky, mate. But the the best bit for me was, you know, the Queen goes, oh, what's happening? And he just went, stared at his uh, mired hand and once again his. It is nothing, he murmured. I've just killed my friend. (laughs) What is wrong with you, man? And, uh, you know, she's she's not overly bothered because she says, well, you know what, there's the lion's mouth. And then she rides off into the flames and kills herself. (laughs) It's all a bit grim, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it is. And uh, Coram, realising that he's alone and he's just murdered his friend and his companion and guard has ridden off into some flames to kill herself. Right, okay, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, may as well go through the lion's mouth. What can possibly go wrong? Mm. Are we uh, moving on to beer two? Oh yeah, we should pause for beer too, shouldn't we? Let me find my bookmark. Right, so I'm going to stick with Stout. And my next contender is Seven Brothers Sling It Out Stout. And it's, it sees for the first time on the show the return of the upcycled Cocoa Pop. Again? Again. So it's a chocolate stout brewed using upcycled Kellogg's Cocoa Pops provided as part of their sustainability programme. Base malt, chocolate malt and caramel malt make up the core of this delicious sweet stout. Now, of course, it's perfectly possible that this is exactly the same one as we drank last I, time. I've got a feeling. I it don't is. think it is, though. No, really. It, it could be. Well, you know what? If anybody, if any of our listeners who listened to that one not so long ago wants to tell us, let us know if we're just repeating ourselves. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm going in. I'm going slightly uh, off piste with something I never drink, but I was mm-hmm. given to it as a gift. I've got a go ahead fruited sour. Oh, yeah. that's normally my bag. And uh, raspberry and rhubarb, mosaic hops and lactose. I like the sound of that. And it's, uh, I particularly like the sound of lactose. And it's got a very amusing can. Uh, bit, yes. Yeah, the can's a bit like um, Adventure Time. So yeah. don't normally drink stuff like this, but uh, cheers, John, who got me yeah. it. And I'll uh, Let's... knock this one down. Ooh. Sounds good, because I fucking love rhubarb. I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent when it comes to rhubarb, really. I mm. think it's, it's all right. I remember yeah. when I was a kid eating it, dipping it in sugar. But yeah. that's because, you know, we couldn't afford chocolate, probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, we couldn't afford sugar. I had to dip <laughs> it in salt. I had to dip my rhubarb in salt. And when I say rhubarb... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I say rhubarb, I mean... Uh, <laughs> The dock leaves. <laughs> <laughs> right, 
Uh, anyway, on that, on that on that tasty treat number. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> hang on, got a, got a bit of got a bit of stomachache. Got a slight hernia after that. <laughs> oh, good God. Uh, right. Oh, yeah. Right. Anyway, I'm going in. <laughs> Celery crumble. It's rhubarb um, uh, Right. Go right. On. Yeah. I'm sure it's the same one. Ah, it's good. It's Look. nice. Right. I'm yeah. going to go in this rhubarby thing. Do it. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's, no, it's nice. It's really nice. Yeah. I think it'd probably be more conducive in the summer, not lukewarm. <laughs> but it's quite tasty, yeah. actually. It's not too sour. Hmm. On, on the subject of salty dock leaves, one of the other Seven Brothers beers I've got is called Salty Tears. Oh, God. And that's like a, a blackberry and something or other fruited sour with salt. Brilliant. So, Kiss, that's yeah. what you need with a beer, I think. You know, one thing that's really mm, missing. Salty beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Refreshing. Yeah, yeah oh, if I can't have mushrooms in my sour, <laughs> I'll have salt. That's what I'll stop it. <laughs> well, where's it going to end? Uh, just a lot yeah. of of gravy in it or something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Corum heads into the lion's head and it all goes trippy for a couple of pages. It really does. And let's let's just let's just skim over the trip yeah, yeah. Of, of, of getting to Ariok's cart because it is pretty trippy. But he gets to Ariok's cart. Chapter six The God, the God Feasters. Is one which of my is favorite. possibly one of my favourite passages since we embarked on our epic reread. Yeah, same here. It's yeah. amazing. Now, since we've been at it, we've had lots and lots of reminders of how influential Mocock's been on fantasy in general and RPGs in particular when it comes to things like law, chaos, symbology, cosmology, and mm. you know, cosmology that makes like a, a sense. So you know, not like the Eno of JIR or whatever it is. You know, a lot, the, the the first lot of pages of the Silmarillion that you know it's it's pretty dense and impenetrable. Um, to the to the casual reader, but it all makes sense, and they're not, you know, in a in a weird trippy way, and they're not just passive gods like Conan's Crom, but they're a living pantheon that features heavily and 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 kind of follows at least some element of psychedelic logic. Yeah, yeah. And now in these probably in those first two pages, we've basically got the major influence behind the chaos gods of of the grim dark end of fantasy. Yeah. And to all intents and purposes. Uh, Warhammer, yeah, pretty much. War- Warhammer have taken these two pages, and the introduction of the chaos symbol, as it's described, a couple of pages later, and they have run with it. So earlier on, I thought, right, hang on, this this sounds very very similar to one of one of the the Warhammer chaos gods. And I was like trying to remember which one it was, and it's Slanish. Yeah, I was going to say, is it Slanish? That was the only one I could yeah. So I quickly looked at the Slanish wiki, and it says Slanish is the Lord of Pleasure. The dark god dedicated to the pursuit of earthly gratification and the overthrow of all decent behaviour, as well as hedonism and pleasure for its own sake. It is the god of obsession, the master of excess in all things, from gluttony to lust to megalomania. So, 
the first two chapters, the, sorry, the first two pages of this chapter, basically, is Mocock saying, I was there before you all, and you nicked it all. Yeah, too right. Yeah. <laughs> you nicked it all. I think the, um, the, Obviously, he didn't realise that people would fucking steal this shit wholesale when I he think was writing it. I think that's why he got naffed off with Chaosium, though, isn't it? The, mm. the fact that they started just like producing like millions of books that they weren't paying yeah. him for is the mm. rumour I heard, anyway. But um, mm, yeah, I mean, th- I know he fell out with them in some way, didn't he? Yeah, I think th- think for me as well the the weird thing about Ariok in, in these. Well, I mean, we'll go through it in a minute. But the the difference between Ariok of the Mabdon and Ariok of of the Melnibonians is is rather stark, isn't it? One you've got like a, a beautiful young mm. kind of boy or ever or whatever it is. You know, he's always pretty much comes across as like a, a beautiful child, doesn't he? Apart from his first introduction of the yeah, when he's, city. When he's a, where he's a seething mass of chaos and yeah. mouths and eyes yeah, and that, darkness. That was his second choice, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. And I think it's almost like reflecting the worshippers in a lot of ways, isn't it? So the Melnibonians love beauty, all that kind of stuff. Whereas yeah. the the Mabdon, this is what they get. I was wondering whether to, and, and I know that we, you know, we regularly do spoilers in this podcast, and we don't tend to worry too much about it. I was wondering whether to read these two pages or just leave it to people and encourage this, them to read it to them, read it themselves. Yeah. But it's these two pages are just so fucking good, yeah, and so disturbing. And and I, I can remember reading it as a, a as a teenager, and and this was really so effective. This like weird combination of of the most freakish elements of Bruegel and Bosch, yeah. and all these other kind of like you know crazy artists who drew really insane things of people getting eaten or people getting mown down or people. It is very. Know, I'm gonna bo- read it. It is very Bosch, isn't it? Yeah, I'm gonna read yeah. it. Coram was dwarfed by the hugeness of the hall. Suddenly, he saw his past adventures, his emotions, his desires, his guilts, as utterly inconsequential and feeble. This mood was increased by the fact that he had expected to confront Ariok the moment he reached his court. But Coram had entered the palace completely unnoticed. The laughter came from a gallery high above where two scaled demons with long horns and longer tails were fighting. As they fought, they laughed, though both seemed plainly near death. It was on this fight that Ariok's attention seemed fixed. The Knight of the Swords, the Duke of Chaos, lay in a heap of filth and quaffed some ill-smelling stuff from a dirty goblet. He was enormously fat and the flesh trembled on him as he laughed. He was completely naked and formed in all details like a Mabdon. There seemed to be scabs and sores on his body, particularly near his pelvis. His face was flushed and it was ugly and his teeth, when he opened his mouth, seemed decayed. Coram would not have known he was the god at all if it had not been for his size, for Ariok was as large as a castle, and his sword, the symbol of his power, would have stood as high as the tallest tower of Castle Iran if it had been placed upright. The sides of the hall were tiered. Uncountable tiers stretched high towards the distant dome of the ceiling, which, itself, was wreathed in greasy smoke. These tiers were occupied, mainly with Mabdon of all ages. Coram saw that most were naked, in many of the tiers they were copulating, fighting and torturing each other. Elsewhere were other beings, mainly scaly Shefanau, somewhat smaller than the two who were fighting together. The sword was jet black and carved with many peculiar patterns. Mabdon were at work on the sword. 
They knelt on the blade and polished part of a design, or they climbed the hilt and washed it, or they sat astride the hand grip and mended the gold wire which bound it. And other beings were busy too. Like lice, they scampered and crawled over the god's huge bulk, picking at his skin, feeding off his blood and his flesh. Of all these activities, Ariok seemed oblivious. His interest continued to be the fight to the death in the gallery above. Was this, then, the all-powerful Ariok, living like a drunken farmer in a pigsty? Was this the malevolent creature which had destroyed whole nations, which pursued a vendetta upon all the races to spring upon the earth before his coming? Ariok's laughter shook the floor. Some of the parasitic Mabden fell off his body. A few were unhurt, while others lay with their backs or their limbs broken, unable to move. Their comrades ignored their plight and patiently climbed upon the god's body again, tearing tiny pieces from him with their teeth. Ariok's hair was long, lank and oily. Here too, Mabden searched for and fought over the bits of food that clung to the strands. Elsewhere in the god's body hair, Mabden crept in and out, hunting for scraps and crumbs or tender portions of his flesh. The two demons fell back. One of them was dead, the other almost dead, but still laughing weakly. Then the laughter stopped. Ariok slapped his body, killing a dozen or so Mabden, and scratched his stomach. He inspected the bloody remains in his palm and absently wiped them on his hair. Living Mabden seized the scraps and devoured them. <clears throat> That's just really fucked up, yeah, isn't it? It's absolutely mental, isn't it? But it is, as you yeah. said, it is like something out of Bosch, isn't it? There's, yeah, it's it's hell, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So Ar- Ariok's bad enough, but the, the behaviour of the people that surround him, yeah, it's 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 a level of baseness and debauchery that you know is is really really vivid, and it has a massive impact on Coram, particularly when after Ariok spots him. And tries to pick him up, and and Karim's kind of dodging him. He has a brief exchange with this like sort of massive slob god, <laughs> and he realizes that after all of this journey, that Ariok didn't really even realize that it caused the death of the entire Vadag race, and it means nothing to him. It was basically just redecorating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically that sums it up. No, it's like yeah, so, yeah. Sorry about that. Oh wait, I wasn't even sorry. Yeah. I was going oh good. Yeah. Just like, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just changing things up a bit. Yeah. And it's, and it's complete, completely oblivious to anything like pain or revenge or any of these things. It's just, it's all bigger than that. It's all bigger than an individual person's pain or loss or bereavement or regret. And it's just all too big and distant for Coram. And Ariok's just not bothered by him in the slightest. No, no. And, you know, you can see why the Melnabonians were, were his favourite. Yes, they were the same, but not yeah. not slobs. True. <laughs> well, ostensibly they weren't. So Ariok, after this brief exchange, Ariok presents himself in a more beautiful form. Yeah. Not the girl, not the golden boy kind of form, but a, a, of an attractive young man in some nice gear. Probably breaks. With a, with a yeah, with a with a nice sword, and the talk for a while, and Coram tries to draw him on why he kills and and yeah. what it's all about, and and Ariok's just like. Ugh. You know, whatever. Don't be so small-minded. Yeah. We do what we want, and we bring beauty and change, and this is just what we do. You can be massively bothered by it. <laughs> yeah. It's up to you. Yeah. And, he, is, and uh, he mentions Shul as well, doesn't he? He does, yeah. And he goes, um, well, basically, Coram says, then you'll be uh, destroyed as the Vadag were destroyed for the same reasons, perhaps. You have a powerful enemy in Shul of Svayan van Lebrule. You should fear him, I think. Oh, you know of Shul, then? Ariot laughed musically. 
poor Shul. He schemes and plots and minds as... He is amusing, is he not? He is amusing, said Coram, disbelieving. Aye, merely amusing. And then he says, um, he says you, you hate him because he is almost as powerful of you, as yourself. And he just says, we hate no one. Yeah. And that's it, it's, isn't it, really? Shul, you're a bit of a shit kicker and you, you're yeah. amusing me. Yeah. That chapter is absolutely fucking brilliant. And it really outlines how chaos works for the most part that it's it's not it's just a force it's not good or evil you know but but it's it's just like a an almost an unstoppable force that's just like you know what we'll do what the fuck we want because that's what we do and it doesn't really matter what you do or say or what you think or what you feel it's just this is how it works if it bores me i'll get rid of it that's pretty much it isn't it it's just yeah, a absolutely endless um, pursuit of pleasure, isn't it? That's that's pretty yeah. much it. Yeah, and even at the point where Coram's like, you know, are you going to kill me? And Arik's like, well, I don't know. Do, do, do you want to live a bit longer? No skin off my nose. Yeah. yeah. He's like, uh, well, yeah, I would. And, you know, somewhere to kip would be all right. So Arik just basically snaps his fingers and he, <laughs> he falls face down on the table and falls asleep yeah. after having had some nice dinner. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's the very last thing he expected to find... <laughs> I think when when he found the Knight of the Swords, yeah, um, that's a bit of a bit of a chat, a bit bit yeah. of a kip. Wakes up, yeah, and then as you said, uh, wakes up and hatches his fiendish plan. This is why Morcock's so great, and this is why Morcock, I'm sure, had such an impact on so many people when they read him for the first time, and he's still continuing to do that to this day, because he even even all the a lot of the modern fantasy where you can you can tell that there are evident you know influences from Morcock. It's still like, well, these people are evil, or they're sister shaggers, or they're paedophiles, or they're, you know, the, the the Mad King burning people alive in their armour, or any of those things. It all seems, when, when you read in Mocock, all that stuff just seems petty, because you've got Glanditha Crane, the first third of the book. Really, is is little more than a plot device. Glandith Akred. At the beginning mm. of the book, you think Glandith is going to be the major villain. Yeah, yeah. No. But Glandith is just a symptom of what's really going on. Yeah, yeah. And what's yeah. behind it all. We, and He's just uh, an idiot, isn't he? He's just a, yeah. a, a moron who's been given too much power, which happens quite a lot, mm. doesn't it? And then yeah. once he's got it, he's going, oh, brilliant, what am I going to do with it? I'll just kill people, it'll be brilliant. Yeah, so forces higher and mightier than him feed his prejudices. Yeah. And feed his fears, and whip him up into a frenzy, and point him in a direction, and off he goes. Yeah, so I mean, we're seeing see that in the fu- seeing that in the news every fucking day, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, too right. Yeah. yeah, pursuit of happiness, pursuit of power for its own sake. It's like yeah. to do what with it, and doing really fucking terrible things because someone has told you that it's the right thing to do because you know them, yeah. the other. Yeah, so it's, it's all a bit. I mean, you know, when you re- read it as a kid, it's like, wow, that's just amazing. And and the thing is, you're rooting for the for the Lords of Law, but you know, you read other books in the in the kind of Mocock canon, and and they're just as bad, aren't they? I mean, you got Miggia yeah. Miggia of Law, uh, which I can't remember what story it's in, and she's a complete nightmare. She tries to destroy mm. Tanalan, doesn't she, at one point in in one yeah, of the stories? Right. Yeah. And they're all you won't want either of them. Ultimately, in all the books, you want you don't want either of them to be in charge. Yeah. And we'll get to all that stuff, won't we? It's, it's, um, I, I'm realizing as I'm as I read this that I probably haven't read this since the eighties, um, and I know that's been the case with with quite a few of the ones we've yeah. looked at. But I honestly thought I'd read the first Coram trilogy more recently than that. But I think it's always the the Prince with a Silver Hand trilogy that I've gone back to and reread. Yeah, I've read a which few. which surprises me because 
I read them again last year or the year before, and they're nowhere near as good as this. No, I quite like the first book. Um, yeah. The setup's great. Yeah, the setting's great. The Foymayara great. The yeah. cold folk, all that stuff, all brilliant. But yeah, but none of it's as good as this. No, no, definitely not. And it's not as well, it's not even in the same ballpark of psychedelic weird no. invention, is it? No. And again, as I said, we'll get to it. But the quest mode stuff is gets pretty tiresome in those books. Not that they're still not good books. They are. Yeah. Unfortunately. You know the the pleasure of Moorcock is even when you hit a rocky patch, you get through it pretty quickly before you're onto the good stuff again. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, he, he wakes up. The whole castle is in darkness. Ariok's buggered off somewhere or other. He's not even guarded. Yeah. Nobody gives a flying fuck about Corum in in the, in the castle of the Knight of the Swords. So everything goes super psychedelic, Indiana Jones yeah. at this point, as he uh, as he goes to find the heart of the Knight of the Swords. And he climbs some precarious ramps and he has some visions and various other bits and pieces. And then eventually he gets to the Chamber of the Heart to find several Mabden warriors, frozen but seemingly still alive and in pain, reaching for the heart but never actually getting to it. So there's some kind of force. The heart can protect itself from people. Hand of Quill, no problem. Deus Ex Machina Hand of Quill kicks in. The magic hand. The magic hand. So he, he, he gets the, the heart and takes it off its plinth, and then the warriors, released, reveal that they were all sent by Shul too. So Shul sent numerous... And there's numerous, a lot of them as well, isn't there, I think? Yeah, I yeah. yeah. He's, he's sent numerous people. So they're all like, great, let's team up. That doesn't last long, because it turns out, as they head down, that weird forces cause some of them to fall off the ramps to the deaths, and they finally get back to, to the main part of the castle. Ariok's back in his massive, fat, scabby, nasty bird. Yeah. There's some particularly unpleasant passages where he scoops up some of the Mabden warriors and eats him yeah. <laughs> and crunches on their bones bit with his rotten teeth. Yeah. And oh no, it was all a crazy plot by Ariok because all along, this is the swerve, <laughs> Ariok could not access his own heart, but he just put this plot in place and Shul was his tool to send people to do it and eventually Coram turns up, gets the heart and Ariok's cock hoop because now he can have his own heart and spread his madness and chaos freely and with abandon rather than being isolated to his specific sphere of influence. What a twist. Yeah, oh, bugger, says Coram. So Ariok scoops him up and is squeezing him and saying, give me the heart, but the hand of Quill won't let go. And then the hand of Quill, being the hand of Quill, six-fingered god hand, crushes the heart. Yes. And Ariok is defeated, but not before he says, Coram... You are now the bane of the sword rulers. Oh my god. What's going to happen now? Oh no. So yeah, he's defeated Ariok. Essentially, every time he gets into a particularly hairy situation... Magic hand. uh, The hand of... Yeah, the the magic hand of Quill kills someone. Yep. Or the eye of Rin, he lifts his eye patch up and dooms another old load of people to undeath to come back and fight for him at some point in the future. Yep. Um, without the hand and the eye, I don't reckon he got very far. You know, no, I think he'd still right. be sailing now. You know, probably mm. about eating his own you know, feet or something after he'd been in yeah. the boat. And, I, and I've got to say, the the, the Mabdenu Shul dispatched originally, if they could have their time again, I, I better say, chop my hand off and give me that hand yeah. before you send me, because Karim really did have a distinct advantage over all those poor fuckers. He did, and it wasn't even. Mm. Um, because he was Vadag, particularly, was it? Yeah, it's because he yeah. lost a hand and an eye. Yeah. And Shul was like, oh, I've got my magic magic item shop. Yeah. I've got just the thing. 
Yeah. And Ariok didn't think of that, did he? So of course, if this was a game, after defeating Ariok, would be would be looting all of the Mabden warrior bodies for the magic items that Shiel gave them. Yeah, the uh, magic hat of Pat Ferrick, all, all of that. The uh, curly shoes yeah. of of jumping, probably. Yeah. yeah. The rhubarb and sugar. <laughs> Combo. Uh, Combo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah dear. So anyway. Sleep. But it doesn't end there. Well, it does, obviously. It doesn't. Because well, chapter nine. Does comes, yeah. yeah, chapter. A pause in the struggle. Yeah. Which kind of is a, bit, a little bit of foreshadowing. Basically, foreshadowing there's going to be two more books. Yeah. yeah. Serious. Lots of it. Yeah. So he has, he has a quick vision. And uh, I will refer everybody back to the opening of this episode because I read it. Yeah. And then he's with the giant of La, who reveals himself to be the banished Lord Arkin of Law. Fuck off, no way. What? What? The giant of La? You're, you're having a giraffe, man. What? That was Lord Arkin. What? He's a massive gorilla, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, no, they have a bit of a chat. the gorilla, wasn't he? Yeah. He was just yeah, a giant. Was, yeah. yeah. So they have a bit of a chat, and Lord Arkin's like, yeah, cool. You know, you've. Uh, I, I miss the brown man. He was a nice fellow. He was. But let's not thanks cry for doing over what you've him. done. No. And then Coram's back at Shul's gaff. He is, and Shul, the silly bollocks, is a bit worse for work. <laughs> he's not in a good way, is he, Shul, to be fair? <laughs> no, it's not. No. no, it's not. He's in bed and he's all frail. Yeah. And he's like, your woman's trying to poison me. Yeah, and he's there going, oh, a withered, decrepit yeah. thing. But lay on the bed and yeah. able to move. And then he runs off and gets eaten by his own carnivorous plants. Yeah, that's what he would have wanted. You know what? I think he deserved it. Of course he did. It's, it's a fair end. And Coram and Relina embrace and head for home. But Coram knows, now he's been branded by Ariok the Bane of the Sword Rulers, his peace may not last. Yeah, he didn't tell her... The end? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He didn't tell her everything, though, did he? It says here, And he began to tell her of all that had befallen him. He told him of the ragged Aketa, blah, blah, blah. He did not tell her, however... <laughs> yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did not tell not tell her how he, on the hand of Quill, had murdered King Tingle <laughs> Or his, his best mate, Hannifax. Yeah, didn't mention yeah. that. Just in case she yeah, got did. a bit wary. Yeah, didn't mention all them murders, what you've done. <laughs> yeah. All them murders yeah. I've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, classic book. Still loved it. Yeah. Uh, it, as you said, very railroady, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? I don't mind for a second. Because it might have been a railroad, but the journey was fabulous, and and we might have skimmed over some of the psychedelic stuff, but it is yeah, you've got to read awesome. it. Yeah, all, all, all the psychedelic stuff is is absolutely brilliant, and so, some of his stuff verges on a little bit of psychedelia. And of course, on, on the last show, I was talking to to Nathan about if somebody did a, an Elric movie, they have to embrace the weird. Yeah, but the psychedelic aspects and weirdness in the Elric books, but this really does turn it up to eleven. Who's the guy who did uh, who directed? Um... Thor Ragnarok. Taika Waititi. Yeah, that's what he said before, yeah. He'd, yeah. he'd be good to take on Corum, I think. He, he, he would, but he can't resist the goofy humour. Yeah, there's not much humour, No, I'm still, I don't want to be a broken record, but I'm still I'm still in the Tarsum Singh camp yeah, yeah. for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And But but even Tarsum Singh is, while he's really kind of, has, has really kind of vivid imagery, he's t- he's, even he's too stared <laughs> to do this shit. Yeah. yeah. How do you go about recreating some of this stuff. I think the answer is you probably don't. Yeah. You know, just just leave it as it is, you know. Yeah, leave it as a book. I mean, I've not read yeah. the the graphic novel actually. I've I've seen bits of it the Mike Mignolo one or whatever. But there is no way. Um and I do like Mike Mignolo. I like his artwork. 
Um, I like Peter Ed Russell and I like a lot of the people who have worked on a lot of these comic adaptations, but those two pages, you're not creating them. You're not recreating any any of that stuff short of some bombed out visionary oil painting kind of person. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. is you know in order to to recreate something like that and make it as vivid and disturbing as your mind's eye makes it. Francis Bacon. Absolutely. That's the Night of the Swords. It is. Yeah. Uh, one of my faves. That's another book done in. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Next, the uh, yeah. Queen of the Swords, maybe. Well, what do you want to do next? I, I do want to do a couple of his just standalone sixties stories and there's um, probably some of those i've not read to be honest yeah um, yeah I, I fancy doing uh the black corridor yeah i've not read that um, or the ice uh, schooner yeah so there's Co- there's lots and lots of well you know what we'll give it some thought yeah we'll give it Condition some thought. music and of course well. yeah well that's we've got to do the other two yeah. first and the elephant in the room behold the man yeah, is always lurking yeah. around isn't it yeah it's a short so, but book. you know what we, we will we will give it some thought but i'm still of a mind maybe to do behold the man as a panel show yeah yeah because, because I think um, if you and Tash were in a room and the subject of Behold the Man came out, she'd probably want a knife fight you for it. <laughs> yeah. She she would shiv you and, and, <laughs> and, and do it over your dead body. She'd probably win, yeah. to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 that'd be cool. I, I, I don't know. Or we, as you said before, we, we go down the... Uh, the comedy route and go to uh, whatever it is of rig life for you. Well, yeah. It means Dennis. reading it, though, doesn't it? Well, it does. And, um, and and I actually read 30 pages of it. Did you? How many Kimmigs um, did that take you? Many. Did it? <laughs> many Kimmigs. I, I would say that there are several Ruvakes worth of typos really? per page. <laughs> per page. And, and I mean it. Really? Almost every paragraph has got a typo. And sometimes a sentence has got two. Really? But there's the... There's one bit I can't I can't wait to talk about it. Is it's about five pages in, and he goes and Danis goes and competes in a team sport, right. <laughs> and and it's got a page long description of the rules, and then two pages of description of the game in play, and it's absolutely baffling <laughs> and completely impenetrable. It's just utter nonsense. Is it more baffling than like, the player of games game? You know, it's like this This guy was like, right, not only am I going to create a brand new glossary, and I'm not going to talk in terms of minutes and hours and miles. I've got to have MIGs, Kimmicks, Vakes, Ruvakes. Um, the best thing is that the, the a, a local leader is called a Kev. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, Kev. Yeah. And uh, but but then he's like five pages in. It's like right. Okay, this is the fifth book. How 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 do I change things? Up? What can I invent now? I will invent a team sport complete with a page of rules. Brilliant. And then two pages of description of the game. And it's just well, <laughs> it's got to be experienced. Yeah. I don't think I can really adequately describe yeah. how ridiculous it is. Yeah. And uh, and eventually he won by seventeen Garys to twelve. That's right. <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> Yeah, Kev was delighted. <laughs> he really was. He, he yeah. was so happy he got a pine tock of of mead. <laughs> That's right. Um, to, yeah, to really cap things off as well, the Dark Straits of Reglathium is, I think, the fourth book yeah. in the series. Good God. And there's and there's five books, and um, I I bought the other four. Oh, no. Well, I bought that yeah. last one. Just I think I got it yeah. for eight pence or something like that. Yeah, well, um, and I couldn't find my copy. I, I hunted high and low for my copy and ordered another one off eBay. And the day it arrived, I unwrapped <laughs> it, went upstairs and saw the other one straight away. Not one, so, but so two. 
Yeah. So I've got I've got two copies of the Dark Straits of Reglevian. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, we could do. Um, what was I thinking? Gentleman of the Road, the Michael Sherbond thing. If you want to do some. Oh, uh, that's a good idea. I should order that. Yeah. Well, why not? That's, we we need we need to mix things up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a good idea. Good. I've got it. I've read it a few times. So yeah, that'd be cool. Oh, cool. Well, I'll, I'll pick a copy of that up again. Because funnily enough. Um, a couple of chaps on uh, Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Um, who listen to the podcast? Yeah, one of them mentioned it, but a couple of other guys have just been on uh, the last few days and said um, they'd be really interested in seeing us explore some of the New Worlds authors. Oh yeah. Um, you know, like the New Worlds connection, so stuff like Jack Trevor Story and uh, and JG Ballard. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think that that might be that will be an interesting avenue to go down as well. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, I've I've been picking up some of the some of the New Worlds volumes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, I think that would be a, a good angle. So yeah, it was um, Tom Murphy and uh, Yestin Pettigrew, um, both of whom have been really good with the podcast. I think it was Tom and Yestin. Who originally posted the podcast on the Facebook page oh, right. where Michael Mocock frequents? Oh yeah. Um, so, so yeah. And what did they say? They said uh, really like that whole period of sci-fi around Mocock's New Worlds and the new wave of science fiction, like Barrington, Bailey, and Aldis's stuff. That was yesterday. And Tom said, as an aside, I'd enjoy a look at some of the New Worlds related stuff. Once you've wrapped everything else up, I think I became aware of Michael Mocock through the connection with J.G. Ballard. So there's all sorts of other stuff there that we could potentially look yeah. at. Ballard did a couple of Jerry Connolly stories, didn't he? It did, yeah. yeah. It's in um, it's in the New Nature of the Catastrophe is it? collection. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the Millennium Edition. I think the Golank, one of the Golanks collections got them all in as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's lots and lots of uh, oh, yeah. of potential. And the other thing is what I was going to mention. I found when I was going through uh, my grandfather's old hairdryer collection uh, a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. Found. Two compendium books of ones of Elric and one of Eternal Champions short stories written by other authors. Oh, it's so so the Elric one is White Wolf, White Wolf's uh, Bucket. I don't know, White Wolf's, somewhere. yeah, White Wolf's Bucket. Yeah. And the other one, yeah, the Eternal Champion one, I didn't realize it even existed again until someone pointed it out on yeah, Twitter I've and got, I got it off eBay. I've got them both, so we could delve into some, some of those yeah why not yeah because um there's a there's a carl edward wagner one isn't there yeah yeah where elric meets kane that's right yeah i read that yeah. one I, I didn't know anything yeah. who kane was but no and actually I've, I've got the kane novels and i hate to say it i've tried and i don't know if it was to do with my frame of mind at the time because they are pretty are quick easy reads i what is it? What, no, you know? no, no. It's it's um. He he was writing these. I think he wrote them in the late sixties and seventies. Did he? Yeah, but he, he was also one of those authors who did all sorts of other stuff as well. You know, as, as like a writer for hire. But his Cairn stories are standalone. Cairn is basically is is Elric or his Conan. Yeah. And I and I tr- I've tried a couple of them and and I've 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 picked them up. I've read some and I've put them down and never I never got on with them. But I did read his Conan novel, The Road of Kings. Yeah. I think it was called. And that's probably one of the better non-Robert E. Howard Conan novels I've ever read. Yeah, right. yeah. He, he, he kind of got Conan, got the tone of it. And some of his um, weird fiction is like Lovecraft-style horror stuff's really, really good as well. But for whatever reason, and I can't put my finger on it, I've tried reading... I've got them on the shelf behind me. Yeah. I really should I really should have another go. But no, you're right. That The, the Eternal... The White Wolf Eternal... It's because the White Wolf is a publisher. The White Wolf Eternal Champion short story collection and... The, the Elric short yeah. story collection. I've got them both. Yeah, I have as well. So, so mm. I was having a look through the Eternal Champion because I've only read a couple of stories on them. One of them, there's a couple of Corum stories and there's a, a Hawkmoon one, yeah. a couple of Elrics and 
I don't know. I might have been even a bus. There's a Carl Glauger one as well. Yeah, but it might be worth having a look at those and just maybe doing a couple of short stories. Well, yeah, let's let's pick one from each then at yeah. random. Yeah, okay. Don't have to be a good one. No, no. Let's pick one at random from each one. So if there's you know if there's twenty, we'll do it D twenty style. Yeah, yeah. We'll roll a D twenty for each one. In fact, right, stand by. Let me get the let, let, let me, me just my grab a version them. of it. As well, yeah. I reckon okay. this is a different one. No, no, it's the same one, yeah. Yeah, I've got both of those, yeah. Right, so... This one's... Pawn of Chaos. Pawn of Chaos. So I'm going to roll a d20. Okay, so I have rolled eight. So, Awakening, a symphony. That's a Jericho movie, this one. Yeah, by Alexandra Elizabeth Honigsberg. So that's one. Yeah, cool. And for Elric, I've rolled 17. The White Child, by Jodie Lynn Nye. So that's good. Two female authors. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. All right, cool. Well, that's what we'll do next show, then. We'll cover those two stories. Yeah, why not? All right, nice one. Yeah, I like the sound of that. Cool. Thank you for appearing once again. No bother. That's two full books and a short story we've done. Yep. We're on a roll. Fucking rocking it, mate. Uh, so um, back to a couple of short stories. We've identified them. We just need to get some in the diary, and we'll get it done. We will. Excellent. Thank you for having me. All right, me. dude. Been a pleasure. See you next time. Thanks as ever to Lars for being such a great co-host. In the spirit of transparency, I can confirm that his third tipple, which we never got to, was an £8 bottle of 12% ABV pancake flavour imperial stout. And I can also confirm it went down the sink. The old beer angle that Loz and I include when we record is a Marmite thing for some folks, I think, but I should point out it was never by design particularly. We don't manage to hook up that often. We live in different cities. But when we do, we always have some comedy beers. It's a ritual, and it has been for 30-plus years. And since we've been recording these shows, and this is Loz's seventh appearance, we have no choice but to continue to combine the two pastimes. The same is the case with Tash, although that generally revolves around rum and food, Hence why we haven't recorded online as of yet. We can drink rum remotely, but I can't eat fabulous Trini cuisine unless I'm in our kitchen. We may still have a bash at some point, but I suspect Tash's return to the show might coincide with lockdown lifting. Meanwhile, chaos engineer Ben has dropped us a line via Patreon to say, Happy New Year! Or rather, while the start of 2021 is undoubtedly a mess, hopefully it will end on a much more positive note than 2020, thanks to the eventual rollout of vaccines. I'm still really enjoying the show, it was great to have the detour show on James Herbert's The Rats, as that was a favourite of my less sophisticated teenage years due to the lurid and gory content. Equally, it's been interesting to hear how Moorcock has influenced music, as that is something I have had very limited exposure to beyond a vague awareness of his involvement with Hawkwind. If it would be of interest to you, then I think it would be cool to revisit Moorcock's influence on gaming, role-playing and wargaming as I think that's another area where the great man's impact has been significantly underappreciated and much more significant than Tolkien. While I love poring over the old 1987 Games Workshop edition Stormbringer book, it was so refreshingly odd and different compared to bog-standard D&D, I completely agree with your assessment that it made a poor starting point to play a game and tell a story within a truly Moorcockian vibe. There are a couple of angles that might be fruitful to delve into. 
what games have obviously appropriate Mococ tropes wholesale for their own purposes. Examples, both Games Workshop's Fantasy Old World and Age of Sigma being the most obvious. What games show more broad or subtle references to Mococ's work? And finally, if you wanted to run a game inspired by or set directly in the Mococian multiverse, then what might be the best way to do that in a satisfying way? Thanks for taking the time to write, Ben, and yes, we will be revisiting Mococ and RPGs at some point too. There's so much to look at. We've touched upon some of the wholesale plunder of Mococ's ideas and imagery on a couple of occasions, including on this show, and we had an unacademic delve into Stormbringer 3rd Edition. I should point out for more considered and experienced takes on Stormbringer and the RPG, check out the Grognard file, or for one that perhaps may feel a bit more controversial to devotees of Mococ and the Chaosium game, the System Mastery Podcast. Kicking around, I also have the original Chaosium take on Hawkmoon, also derived from the house system that powered RuneQuest and the Call of Cthulhu. The Mongoose take on Hawkmoon and their two stabs at Elric, based upon their two different licensed versions of RuneQuest, the latter rebadged as Legend, then again as RuneQuest VI, and then finally as Mithras, and the Darkside Corum supplement for the Elric exclamation mark revision of the Chaosium game, later rebadged and reprinted with massive fonts as Stormbringer 5th edition. Metal fans may remember Rock Family tree charts from the 80s that mapped out the connections between various marks of Deep Purple, Rainbow and Black Sabbath, and we definitely need a similar one for Mocock games. It's all very confusing. But for what it's worth, I do think that the Corum supplement is probably the best of the lot. There are also a lot of really interesting and very cool newer takes. I'm thinking of Pact and Blades by Lucas Rowan, and The Black Sword Hack by Kobayashi. Also, there was an RPG released back in the day called Sorcerer, probably in the 90s, that may be a little bit obscure these days, but there was a sword and sorcery supplement for that too. And last year, I discovered John Wilson's Ashcan supplement for it called the Elric Dictionary. John's on Twitter as at BionicBudda, and his pinned tweet is all about this supplement. Well worth checking out if you're a gamer. John also put me onto the work in progress, Stormhack, by Ralph Ludgrove, aka Fictoplasm. Check out his podcast if you haven't already, and that's on his itch.io page right now. So there's plenty to look at from the perspective of new stuff, as well as going back to look at the old. On the subject of the rats, Phil and I really enjoyed doing it, and we're mulling over our next horror entry and whether to go with Lair, or The Fog, or someone different altogether. And weirdly, since I put the podcast on YouTube, more for my mum's benefit than anything else, because she doesn't really do podcast clients, it's had very little traffic, with the exception of The Rats, which has had almost five times as many hits and minutes watched than every other episode combined. So there's obviously some mileage in podcasting about James Herbert. And of course, we'll always have Nine Princes in Amber still lurking around there on the fringes. But it's time now to thank our marvellous patrons. Our Chaos Engineers. Andrew Seclunas, Neil Clapperson. Robbo. Andrew Van Ness. Dave Ashman, a.k.a. Cernus. John Lays. John Timothy Watt. Jim Kirkland. Simon Perrins. Mal Pertwee. Ben Fletcher. And Fred Keish. And our crafty Jugaderos, Randall Gatlin, Taylor, Craig Ledley, Greavesy, Loz, Tom Murphy, Alex Harris, Andrew Clark, Graham Holden, and check out his Kickstarter for the full shanty card game, Ian Stead, Matthew Broom, and of course to our patron demons, Lord Norman of the Higher Worlds, Joe Monty, Anthony Piconti, Paul Hillary, aka The Lapsed Gamer, Neil Burton, the Destiny Knight, Bob McMillan, Mortmain, and Nathan. 
Not only are you all a fabulous support, but you're also a great motivation to keep this up. So, stay tuned for Chapter 9 of the Journal after the transition. Take care, stay safe, and I'll see you soon again on the Moonbeam Roads. The Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly Chapter 9 Terminus Horrified at the sheer bulk of the thing from the murk, I scrambled backwards and tipped yelling over the low stool. Grasping for balance and regaining a knee, I knocked the table on its side, sending the glow globe rolling and rustling behind me. The flittering, illuminated motes brightened momentarily, and for an instant I fancied that I discerned some form of facial features amongst the rolling, oily flesh of the bulk coming at me. Two squinting eyes, roomy orbs behind heavy lids that objected to the flaring of the globe, nostrils that streamed muck, a quivering mouth that reminded me of a child about to cry. Relentlessly, it moved upon me, cursing my lack of poise, no doubt resulting from wet boots and training that conditioned me to an armed stance that, without a sword or sidearm, left me floundering. I determined to adopt a boxer's attitude. That bare fists were unlikely to have much impact on this thing was not lost on me, but instinct is a powerful thing. I took three swift paces back and set myself to receive the clumsy charge, stepping to my left as it reached touching distance and swinging a hook to what I had fancied was its face. My knuckles smacked hard into a hide that, beneath the slick and oily goo, was supple but leathery and resistant to my swing. Nevertheless, it howled in a possible combination of pain and a heavy dose of humiliation as I followed up with a straight jab to the eye area. My confidence was almost my undoing as the thing shifted and rolled, the face sliding back over its uppermost bulk, and a leg, or tail, or some other appendage thrust out from a hidden fold and struck me square in the breadbasket, winding me and casting me backwards into the muck of the swamp. Obese glowing bugs scattered from the limp reeds and flew drunkenly in all directions as I schlepped into the ooze. As my body described a perfect arc, I was simultaneously gasping for breath as I plunged back first into the thick and fetid goo. It filled my nose and mouth and ears, but was so heavy and viscous, I was fortunate that I did not inhale much, although it did choke off my breath. On the other hand, it tasted like the hull engineer's billet smelled, and I started immediately to gag. The consistency, combined with my flat-backed, star-shaped impact, and the reeds, prevented my head sinking further than a couple of inches into the mire, and I was quickly able to surface and spit the foul matter from my mouth, retching as I did so. Searing pain shot around my trunk as I sucked in breaths between dry heaves. My abdomen protested like the axial wires of an airship in a heavy gale. As my eyes were full of muck, I couldn't hear where the thing was, and... 
concluding that Marquess of Queensbury rules probably wasn't a likely solution in these circumstances, I wiped my eyes and took my bearings. The thing was nowhere to be seen. The wharf that I had been struck from still stood leaning around 15 feet away. It was all in gloom. The paper glow globe had been flattened and the sources of light from within were dispersing into the moisture heavy air, quickly losing their vibrancy. I made for firmer ground in some haste, almost losing my beautiful boots to the sucking mud in the process. Fear of renewed attack by the thing was tempered somewhat by the thought that they may be permanently ruined. Once on more sound footing, I ran into the gloom and away from the wharf. After a few minutes, I stopped, panting, and began to heave once again. The muscles around and below my ribs felt like they were rupturing with each convulsion, due not only to the violent rejection of the swamp goo, but also overcoming the dying adrenaline of the moment to loudly remonstrate regarding the damage caused by the blow from the thing. And as if circumstances weren't disturbing enough, my mood took a further downturn when I patted my pockets in search of cigarettes to find that my remaining capstans were ruined, as were my matches. I sighed, although not too deeply for fear of inflaming my already battered diaphragm, and threw away the wretched orange and now off-white packet of knackered fags in a fit of pique and disgust. Looking around me, I could see that I'd been running alongside rather than away from the reed-choked marsh that was now giving way to more open, but still motionless water. The surface was glinting in the dim light of a foggy morning, and this made no sense whatsoever, as I'd left the officers' club at last orders only 15 minutes or so prior. But very little of this made any sense, so my naturally pragmatic nature asserted itself and I scanned around to gauge my situation. Around a hundred or so yards away, by the bank of the still waterway, I saw a one-storey brick building, derelict, with broken panelled windows, shutters hanging limply, and a rotten wharf by the waterside. A decrepit crane, for transferring heavy goods from barges no doubt, leaned crookedly against the stained red bricks of the building. As I approached, fat bugs, no longer luminescent, moved along the reeds that still choked the bank, sounding like long, slow farts. The promise of shelter spared me onwards and heightened my sense of vulnerability. It wasn't so long ago that I'd confronted the thing from the mire and, possibly through great fortune, as well as my well-practiced jab, I'd managed to make away from the encounter with nothing worse than bruised ribs and filthy clobber. I had no idea whether the monstrosity had given up on its designs on me, or if it was still stalking me, just waiting for another opportunity to strike. So I sharpened my pace. As I approached the building, it became evident that the terrain around it was almost lost to wetland, but at one time, had been drier. A pair of rail tracks terminated there, one at a rusted buffer stop at its side, and the other, apparently inside the building, behind a pair of great weather-beaten metallic doors, possibly of copper or brass. The tracks, of a considerably wider gauge than any I was used to, originated from the marshes, but were now lost beneath the gluey mud and water. Dimly visible out in the marshes, beyond the swaying motions of the ubiquitous marsh bugs, was a spindly tower or raised platform. A dim light at the top softly penetrated the thick fog of the damp air. It was at least 150 yards away, and I had no appetite to investigate until I'd managed to dry off. Clambering onto the raised platform by the buffer stop, I peeked through one of the windows, gaping like a wound in the brickwork. I was instantly struck by a combination of simultaneously repellent and comforting aromas, like the sweetish but musty whiff of decaying plaster, and that of the remains of the detritus left behind the people that have fled, 
and the welcoming smell of warm bread and hot milk. Not hanging around to flip a coin, I pulled aside some damp upholstery that had been affixed across the interior of the frame and forced my way through, cursing as I tore my breeks on something I'd failed to spot in my haste. With daylight behind me, my vision took a few seconds to begin to adjust to the gloom within, and I waved my arm ineffectually as I attempted to dispel the motes of dust and fabric that were haranguing me after I'd disturbed the makeshift curtains. I was unsuccessful, and it only caused me to inhale more of it and sneeze violently and copiously. My eyes watering, I cleared my sinuses after the fashion of a footballer, and by the time I'd regained control of myself, I could make out more of the interior. The sides of the warehouse, or whatever it was that I'd entered, was a mess of old metal, tubes, chains and coils. It took me a few moments to make sense of it. Then I realised that amongst the mess of decayed and rusting frames were spoked wheels. Clambering over it all, and tearing my pants anew, I realised there were bicycles of some sort, but with additional features that appeared to be electric accoutrements similar to Tesla coils. After clearing the mess of metal and decayed rubber, I discerned a soft amber emanation from the corner of the space. Tripping over the rails I'd observed earlier, I stumbled forwards in the realisation that the corner, that I could see now as a small room, door slightly ajar, was also the source of the more appealing smell. Without ceremony, or fear for my safety, I pushed the door back and took in a lungful of the warm air within. A cot stood in the corner, and a small cast iron stove, still aglow with dying embers but pushing heat from its heavy case that instantly warmed my hands and face. Even better, a small parcel of grease-resistant parchment was atop it wrapped in string. Ravenous, and already hung over, I tore it open and fell upon the comestibles within. The pastry was warm and buttery, sort of. It had the consistency of a good shortcrust pastry, but it had a more oily and less comforting taste. Probably margarine, I thought to myself, rather foolishly I suppose but I'd never quite recovered from the ignominy of growing up with my grandmother's penchant for stork SB and her bacon. Within the soft melting mass I was shoveling into my mush was a filling that I couldn't place. It was sweet, but also slightly piquant and meaty, and underscored by something I couldn't quite place. I sat on the cot and pulled off my boots and breeks to evaluate the damage. I was suddenly very tired, and despite the daylight outside it was to me well after midnight, and I'd had a very long evening. The warmth in the room was reassuring and my belly was full. I removed the remainder of my dress uniform and put my feet up for a few moments, thinking on how to obtain a clean drink, as the pastry had lined my mouth with a slightly odd taste of whatever fat was used in its baking. I was asleep within seconds. I dreamed I was wise, surrounded by those I viewed as children. My speech and diction were strange. I was admonishing my companions for some reason. A man chooses his own fights. He may lose his liver, or an eye, or his dignity, or his member, or even his life. But it's his choice. But there go I, fooled like the wuzzo bird, by the hollow civilised concept of friendship, plummeting like the crag-styling chick to the shale below, brain cracked open and bog-bugs feasting on the goo inside. Their shamefacedly cast low glances at each other and one began to cry. Discomforted by this turn of events, my dream self flexed powerful muscles, apparently as some kind of anxiety response, and considered an alternate approach. In my oddly accented tongue, I offered, Times like these, I am reminded of the lament of the five-winged wuzzo bird. The bawling of the wuzzo bird serves several purposes, all the same, useless, 
The Wuzzo Bad is a stupid thing. Be better than the Wuzzo Bad. The crying only intensified and increased in volume, offending my ears. I was suddenly torn violently from my sleep as my dulled brain, pulled from REM state, began to differentiate the dream from the reality. That somewhere outside my haven, now grown colder as the remaining embers had expired, a child was wailing and crying in truth. 